1: Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.
2: Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically
0: Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision?
1: hey welcome to stuff to blow your mind my name is robert lamb
0: and i am joe mccormick and it's saturday time for an episode from the vault this one originally published january 17th 2023 and it's the first part in our series on horror vacui the fear of the void hope you enjoy
3: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be starting up a series on the subject of horror vacuaries. Which can be translated directly as fear of the void, but has also been paraphrased in the form of the statement, nature abhors a vacuum. Now, I think this is going to be a great subject for us because this principle has facets that appear in art, psychology, and all kinds of other domains. But... It's often traced all the way back in its origin to the scientific writings of Aristotle in the 4th century BCE, though Aristotle did not use exactly this phrase. Of course, how could he? It's Latin. Um, But he did argue in his book on physics, that the concept of a vacuum in nature was implausible, and in fact, even worthy of ridicule. Uh, So this occurs in Aristotle's famous physics. Uh, This is book four, part eight, though his attempted refutation of vacuum physics uh, spans several sections. I think it's like parts uh, six through nine of the book or so. And it's interesting that uh, Aristotle does not approach this subject from uh, kind of uh, from first principles but instead he approaches it by entering an ongoing debate among other philosophers where there's a camp arguing against the existence of empty space and that apparently contains figures like Anaxagoras and then there's a camp that argues for the existence of empty space and that contains the Pythagorean school and others so in trying to stake his own claim in this controversy, Aristotle makes the argument that the existence of empty space is logically incoherent. And this leads to a harsh joke at the expense of space itself. He writes, but even if we consider it on its own merits, the so-called vacuum will be found to be really vacuous. Ah, uh, That might be funnier in ancient Greek. I'm not sure. <laughs> So I think we'll come back specifically to the history of horror vacui in physics in a subsequent part in this series. But uh, I thought this was a good place to start because a lot of people seem to trace this general idea back to Aristotle. And they often identify him as sort of the, the, the grandfather of this tradition of being intolerant of empty space or of the very idea of emptiness.
1: Yeah. And just the whole idea that nature abhors a vacuum, like it's, you could also kind of translate it as, hey, anytime there's a place where stuff isn't, but stuff could be, well, guess where you're going to eventually find stuff right there. Um, and, you know, you, could, you can apply that to uh, economics, you can apply it to evolution, um, because for the most part, like various interpretations of that hold very true. Yeah, and of
0: course there are tons of examples uh, in in physics where you can identify this sort of phenomenon. I mean, if for example. Uh, uh- Entropy, particle entropy. If you take mm-hmm. a rectangular container and half of it is filled with gas and the other half has no gas in it, uh, if you just, like, let it go on its own and do nothing to it, eventually the gas will even out in distribution and fill the entire container. It, something about nature seems to reject that, uh, that arbitrary starting point of division, and entropy tends to just have everything spread out, even out. It doesn't want to let that emptiness remain.
1: Yeah. Or um, on the other end of the spectrum, if you have an empty drawer or cabinet in your kitchen, um, see how long that lasts. Because eventually, eventually something's going to come along and it's going to be the perfect place to stick it.
0: Right. But one big place uh, where where Harvakui has been recognized throughout the years is, is in the world of
1: art. That's right, yeah. And in this, we get into, yeah, this softer treatment of the vacuum, of empty spaces. And also a lot of, I think, ultimately, uh, discussions or arguments over, like, what, what constitutes an empty space and so forth. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, in within the worlds of art and design, horror vacuee basically comes down to a tendency to fill blank spaces instead of leaving them empty. I've also seen it argued as a kind of uh, maximalism opposing minimalism. So you know it's like, like I'm gonna I'm gonna create this painting or you know think of it I guess from a, like like a street art uh, graffiti kind of standpoint. Uh, what am I gonna paint on this wall and how much of this wall am I gonna paint? Well, I'm gonna paint all of it and I'm gonna fill it with with just so many things? Or are you, is it going to be mostly a, sort of a blank canvas drawing your attention to the one, I don't know, songbird that you've created at the middle of this uh, street canvas? Yeah. Now, for, for my own part, uh, and I imagine everyone out there has some version of this, but for my own part, my mind quickly goes to a, a few different handy examples. Uh, some of my favorite artists do seem to abhor the vacuum on some level. Uh, for instance, I've I've long been a fan of uh, the dark surrealism of, of Irving Norman, and his work tended to consist of very complex, crowded, dynamic expanses that had a lot of like urban and industrial energy to them. Um, and, and and so it has a lot of chaos. It has a lot of soullessness, and a lot of it is about sort of capturing the the spirit as he saw it of the modern world. Oh,
0: that's interesting. The the connection to modernity, because I think a lot of people over the years have made this argument that something about how how culture changes over time, maybe a lot of this is driven by technology, uh, results in the 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 constant sort of ingress of stuff into more and more uh, previously unfilled spaces of your your attentional life. So whereas life used to, at least according to this argument, involve a lot more kind of boredom and idleness and sort of sitting around with your own thoughts, uh, not having anything to do and, and things like that. Uh, now th- there's just like always something to occupy you and occupy your attention.
1: Yeah, and his works in particular, they, they they do have this feeling to them. Um, the one I included for, for you to look at here, and certainly listeners can look this piece up as well. This is War and Peace. It's a triptych, and uh, this is a piece I've gotten to see in person. That uh, was on display in San Francisco at least for a while. Uh, big piece, and and a piece like this is great to see in person as well because you get to sort of get a little closer and check out some of the many details that make it up. For instance, uh, one of the pieces here, you see all these buildings in it, like a a, a surrealistic view of skyscrapers. And each little window uh, has somebody inside with like some sort of pained or horrific or bored expression on their face. Um, So, yeah, he he really seems to fill every available space with some sort of detail. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, uh, there are plenty of older artists that come to mind, uh, you know, pre-modern artists uh, like uh, Hieronymus Bosch comes to mind, Peter Bruegel, the Elder. Um, Another contemporary example that I instantly think of would be the visionary um, art of of Alex Gray, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, very psychedelic, but also just filled with flow and color. And there's just this sense of every available space has been sort of engulfed by uh, energies that cannot normally be viewed with the naked eye.
0: Yeah. Now you you raise Hieronymus Bosch, and that really got my uh, gears cranking because when it comes to horror Vakui and Bosch, I I could be wrong, but I sense a trend uh, in his religious paintings where there's an association of busyness with bad things, with chaos and sin, Uh, whereas empty space seems to be more associated with order and godliness and righteousness. So, uh, you know, hell is bustling and full and just teeming with activity, whereas heaven, or maybe the Garden of Eden before the fall, is orderly and clean and has plenty of empty space, plenty of floor space. Uh, one example, of course, I think of here is the the triptych, The Last Judgment, where if you see, you know, the Garden of Eden, a, apparently a a time before sin, there's just a lot of uh, kind of empty ground. There's like not a lot going on. There's there's plenty of expanses that have yet to be filled with anything. And also, if you look at the middle panel of the triptych. There is war and chaos and suffering and disease and violence and stuff taking place down on Earth, and it's a very busy scene. But up above, you see Christ and the angels, and everything's very clean, and there's, like, not a whole lot going on. There's a lot of empty space up in the sky.
1: Yeah, this is a great point.
0: So in a way, I wonder if that's kind of an inverse horror vacui, where you know the the like the the vacui is actually the indicator of of goodness and orderliness, and and you know when, when there's too much stuff going on, that's a sign that something has gone wrong, that that uh, order has broken down, but. Clearly, this is not a universal association within art or even within religious art. For example, Dante's Paradiso seems to be anything but empty. You know, the heavens in that vision are crammed with overwhelming, incomprehensibly busy stimuli. There's, you know, a lot of things where he's just like, there was so much I couldn't understand mm-hmm. what I was looking at. Um, and in some versions of Gnosticism also, the sort of ultimate ideal plane of reality and the, the sum of all divine potential is called the pleroma, which in Greek means fullness, the opposite of emptiness or void.
1: Your example of uh, here from the last judgment, uh, this, this made me think about, OK, and at least in the Middle uh, part of it, uh, you're talking about, you know, here we have uh, Christ appearing in the sky and everything's a little more open and we see the, the blue and ultimately the white of, uh, of naked sky there. And I, I, I was comparing this to some other works that I'll mention in a second, but it made me wonder, like, when is the sky full and when is the sky empty? Um, because it seems like on some level, a blue or white sky in a painting is certainly a different animal compared to, say, a red sky. In the same way that um, the standard wall color for a museum is usually, at least today, not black or red, but a nice white or a muted gray. Uh, But on the other hand, like a a, a night sky is not necessarily like the darkness of space is not necessarily understood to be uh, um, full. Uh, But I guess it could be, depending on how you're looking, it's certainly full of stars. Yeah, and
0: specifically, I mean, skies are, yeah, they're rendered in very different ways. I mean, sometimes the stars themselves are very busy. I think of, uh, I I guess this is obvious to go to, but Starry Night.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, And as as far as Dante goes, I I instantly thought back to Gustave Dore's later, much later illustrations of the Divine Comedy. And sometimes those do and sometimes they don't match up with this general idea uh like there's one particularly uh, famous image from uh, Dore's illustrations where we see um, uh, the, see um, uh, Dante and his his guy who is his guide in Paradiso it's um, in the Paradiso it's it's Beatrice Yes, Beatrice yes that's right so it's uh, it's Dante and Beatrice and here in front of them is just this incomprehensible uh, and it's almost like the eye of Sauron uh, f- with with just multitudes of swirling angelic beings all around it. yeah, it's all, you're
0: looking into uh, just a tunnel made of like nanotechnology, except it's mm-hmm. it's all angel wings.
1: Yeah, and then there's another uh, uh, one of uh, Dore's illustrations where we see Dante and B stand in here on a cloud and we see multiple rings of angels. And certainly there are a lot of angels in each ring, but there's a lot more open space, particularly above them. And there's an openness to that image that you don't see in a lot of the Dore illustrations of uh, e- any of the three realms of uh, the Divine Comedy.
0: Agreed. And so that, that division uh, seems to be a... You know, whether you want to represent beauty and holiness as, as a, a kind of incredibly busy phenomenon or as something with a lot of empty space in it, I don't see an overwhelming trend one way or the other. I mean, it seems like a sort of uh, a pretty evenly divided issue of preference because I think of, of tons of paintings uh, from all throughout history and all throughout different cultures where empty space is clearly the thing that makes the painting so beautiful or the art so beautiful. One that came uh, to my mind while we were getting ready for this episode was uh, there's a Chinese work of art from, I think, the 13th century uh, called On a Mountain Path in Spring by Ma
1: Yuan. Do you know that one, Rob? I have just pulled it up in front of me. Uh, oh, yeah, this is beautiful. I'm, I'm not familiar with this piece.
0: Yeah, one thing I really like about it, so to try to describe it, it shows like a, a man on a path and there are sort of like some uh, trees drooping over around him and there's a bird in flight up ahead of him uh, and you see the, the ridges of some mountains in 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 the background in one half of the painting. But one thing I really love about this painting is that Essentially, only half of it is filled in. So behind the man, you see the outlines of all these forms. There are tree trunks and uh, there's the, the path. You see little uh, you know, ridges and indentations in the ground and tree roots and shrubs. And you see the mountains in the background. And then in the other half of the painting, essentially all the forms just disappear. And it's almost entirely empty space, except for a little suggestion of the path continuing along on the ground and a bird.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful piece. And, you know, and I also want to mention that many of the artists that one might point to and say, okay, this is someone who definitely abhors the vacuum. Uh, they're, they're definitely a maximalist. Uh, you can also find plenty of examples where they, they play with opening things up a little bit, like even just, uh, Looking back through some of Irving Norman's works, like there are uh, some pieces where you have uh, you know fairly sizable expanses of, say, sky, uh, sometimes blue sky, other times extremely blood red skies, but sky nonetheless. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I don't know what this is. So my, my ruined vulgar mind looks at one of these paintings, uh, the one with the red sky, and I just think Hellraiser 2.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean it is a it is a hellish image. Um it, it it does have some of those vibes to it for sure.
0: I think it's that the red sky and then the sort of like maze of walls beneath that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this one is called War-Wounded
0: and it's another uh, one of my favorite pieces by Irving Norman. It is beautiful. I apologize for the the, the Barker comparison.
1: No, no, no. I mean uh I think it's apt. I mentioned the, the walls of a, of a museum earlier because I think this is also key as well, because uh, when you think of gallery walls and even picture frames in a modern sense, we tend to think of a very minimalist um, features, right? The trend nowadays, at least, is, of course, to display works of art in unassuming frames on largely blank walls with at least some amount of space between each work. Sort of give, allow each work a little room to breathe. But this was, of course, not always the fashion and isn't always the fashion. Maximalist and minimalist approaches are just trends and uh, ensure that the complex wallpaper may be pulled away and the geometric wall-to-wall carpeting may be ripped up from space, but given enough time, these things may come back into fashion again, and you'll get even crazier wallpaper plastered back up and even more complex carpet installed wall-to-wall. But there are some interesting properties involved, with, like what does it do when you have something worth looking at in the midst of white space? Uh, You know, what does emptiness, what does the void do? And uh, there's an offsided quote from art historian Ernst Gombrich, who lived 1909 through 2001, uh, in which he stated, quote, the richer the elements of the frame, the more the center will gain in dignity. I believe this is a part of his theory of perception. And I, th- I think it's a pretty insightful statement, and we can, we can apply it to the blank walls behind a canvas, to the unassuming picture frame, or even uh, elements within a given work where the, the busy... Aspects of a piece focus our attention towards something more open, like, for instance, Christ floating in the sky above uh, this otherwise chaotic scene in uh, a painting by Bosch. Oh, that's kind of interesting. So that might explain the popularity of these
0: very ornate, highly textured, you know, frames around paintings with all these ridges and, and swirls and so forth.
1: Yeah, and certainly you 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 will often encounter, even in modern museums, sometimes these older pieces that are still in very ornate frames. And I'm always interested in that because I guess because it kind of throws me for a curve, comparing it to more modern works and modern framing. Uh, and then you'll encounter this piece that has some sort of a picture frame that, I mean, could arguably be seen as distracting from the piece itself, but but maybe not, maybe guiding you in. Now, as far as the term. Um, horror vacui goes uh, depending on tastes and trends. You'll see it uh, in the art world sometimes invoked as praise, other times invoked as criticism. Um, take the the often busy art of Jackson Pollock, who lived 1912 through 1956. Um, it's kind of a prime example of this duality. Uh, even though not all of his works uh, abhor the vacuum, you'll find you'll find a little space in some of his pieces. And I think maybe those are the ones that I. I may be a little more drawn to. Oh, but you mean that,
0: like, critics had described it in terms of horror vacui both positively and negatively? Like, this is good because it sates my horror vacui, or this is bad because it's just a product of horror vacui?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think I think in, in the case of, of, of Pollock, and, and people are more familiar with art criticism out there than me can, can chime in on this, but it seems like you see it invoked uh, more as a criticism, you know, almost like, well, this, clearly this artist is afraid of the vacuum. Uh, uh, otherwise, they would have given us a little more space. But I don't know, even the really busy Jackson Pollock pieces, uh, which, which I think I, I have also uh, had the chance to see in person, some of these pieces. Like They're really neat to see in person because you do get—it's a similar situation. You can take it all in, but you can step a little closer and sort of look at just uh, some of the the closer details, and it's really enthralling. Now, the term has also been used to describe uh, cultural artistic traditions. I've seen it uh, used to describe uh, the the work of the ancient Egyptians as well as the trend in Islamic art towards the expansive use of geometric patterns. Mm Mm-hmm. Apparently, however, the originator of the term in art criticism itself was Italian born art and literature critic Mario Praz, who lived 1896 through 1982, who used it mostly to slam the cluttered visual interior design one sees, particularly uh, in Victorian households, Victorian design. Uh, Joe, I included a uh, sort of stereotypical image of a, of a, vic- of a rich Victorian uh, sitting room here. And it, I think it raises the question, is this too busy or is this just comfy? Is this, yeah. is this uh, like hoarded fancy items or is this somebody who wanted to surround themselves with the things they like and sort of warm themselves in the glow of those things?
0: So so the critical idea here could be yeah like is there too much uh patterned wallpaper too much patterned upholstery on the furniture too many little doodads all over the place it's just the room is too busy you should live in a Rothko
1: Yeah <laughs> I and I guess one of the things that really comes out in thinking about it in terms of art is of course art criticism is 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 generally highly uh, subjective. And so also is the the use of a term like horror uh, vacui in terms of, of art and design or any kind of creative endeavor. And, uh, and film is not immune to this. Um, I, I was really excited by this because I was looking around for, I don't think I was even particularly looking for something about film, but I ran across discussion of horror vacui in Jallo films. Hmm. Yes. Uh, Fangoria Magazine's Alexandra Heller-Nicholas has written film criticism discussing the subject of horror vacui in Jallo films. Uh, the book in question, uh, which uh, I haven't had time to read in full yet, but for what I've read so far is, is, is quite good. It's The Jallo Canvas, Art, Excess, and Horror Cinema.
0: Jalo is absolutely a genre of excess. And that is part of what makes it so uh, enticing. Is it's just unrestrained expressiveness and gaudiness.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's it, this is of course uh, largely we're dealing with Italian cinema here, though though its influence becomes such that it spills out into European cinema in general, and also has a big influence on the global slasher genre. Uh, but yeah, it's generally stylish to some degree, gratuitous. Uh, you know, it's flashy. And uh, so, uh, Helen Nicholas here points out that naturally uh, a horror vacui doesn't just apply to highbrow art. Uh, she cites the illustrations of Robert Crumb as an example, and then points to a couple of other horror cinema examples. Uh, possible examples such as Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, particularly this is the, the the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Particularly, I believe she was pointing out uh, these some of these early scenes where we're not even getting into the blood and the excess, um, but just like scenes where the the inside of the the chainsaw massacre household is just cluttered with all sorts of of you know uncanny items like skulls and bird bones and, and knickknacks. And she also points to some other examples where there's like just uh, where it's a similar situation where a lot of disturbing stuff sort of thrown at you so fast and 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 you don't the general rule in in horror you know don't don't show the monster too long don't show the gore effect too long and, and it can kind of overpower you it, like overpowers the circuits uh, with like, unease or revulsion but uh, to, to read a quick quote here. Quote, in giallo cinema, while certainly not lacking in moments of excessive blood and guts, excessive nudity, etc., it is also just as much frequently marked by an excess of style. Through color, music, mise-en-scene, and even performance styles, these films, too, are marked by a sense of too-muchness, an excess we can loosely align with this tradition of horror vacui
0: that is an excellent description of JALO and, and what makes it so special that the, the core stylistic feature of it is too muchness. It's just yes. a lot in every possible way.
1: Yeah. And I I don't know about you, but even just thinking about this made me think of various stills from 1977 Suspiria by Dario Argento, Mm -hmm. uh, where there's just there's a lot of too muchness in in the the film. Even the shots that are not bloody shots, there are several really bloody shots that are just overpowering the senses, but also other scenes that have like a Mario Bava hyper uh, color realm sensibility to it or just like a lot of a lot of lines and shapes thrown at you. Yeah, a lot of interior designs,
0: wall, I don't know if it's wallpaper, but painted walls with busy designs, uh, you know, just fixtures and artworks and uh, just stuff everywhere. It is not a minimalist-looking film.
1: Yeah. Now, now speaking of film, I also, uh, in, in, in looking at all this, I, I couldn't help but think of movie posters as well, mm-hmm. uh, sort of the difference between a you know, an exciting, packed, maximalist uh movie poster versus the, the minimalist movie poster, uh, which was certainly, a, a design trend, uh, uh, not too long ago, may, maybe in the last you know, 10 years. And I guess there's still a lot of it going on, uh, maybe not at the professional level, but sort of as a design exercise and an art exercise among uh, other folks. Yeah. Like, uh, like I, you know, I think of posters by American artist, Drew Struzan, who did, uh, poster art for Blade Runner, uh, various Star Wars films, also, the, uh, the 1977 uh, killer worm movie, Squirm. Uh, these are all three poster examples, and you can look these up, uh, where there's just a lot packed into the image. They're, they're beautiful, and they seem to overflow with the energy of those films, be it the drama, the sort of neon intrigue of something like, like Blade Runner, or just the monstrous squirminess of Squirm. Yeah, well, there's a lot of actors' heads, so they're trying to
0: pack actual marketing information into the painting. You're going to see... Here here are all the actors that you know and love that are going to get you into the theater, but also they're trying to give you some information about the plot so you will see, like, moments or scenes from the movie in the poster. But then also, yeah, like you say, they're trying to suggest the, uh, I don't know, the kind of, like, throbbing energy of the movie. Like, the horror ones are going to have a kind of uh, a squirminess to them, (laughs) you know, a kind of, like... Uh, a kind of queasy light coming off of them, whereas the 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 sci-fi action movies have this uh, glow as if from stars in the background or something.
1: Yeah, and and with something like Squirm, they're 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 not really any big name actors in that. You're not trying to market it that way, so you you pull back on the the identifiable faces and heads, and you just focus on the the squirminess of the picture.
0: Now, I really did enjoy a lot of those recent uh, redesigns of classic movie posters, but in minimalist form, though I think that works a lot better for movies that people already know and love than it does for movies that nobody's ever seen before. Like, when when you're advertising a movie and you're trying to, like, catch people's eye and make them see it, that seems like when you really do actually want to try to cram a bunch of stuff into the poster to, like, cast a lot of lines, essentially. Like, oh, do you like this actor? Their face is on there somewhere.
1: Yeah, like, I was looking around for minimal examples of all three of these films that I, I just mentioned. I found... You know, there are a lot of them that have been created for Blade Runner in the Star Wars films, but I found a an Episode 3 poster for Star Wars, and they they did the smart thing of basically invoking the shape of Darth Vader's head. Like, that's an, that's an easy one. You can go super minimalist on that because it's a very identifiable character outline. Yes,
0: totally. I really like this one for Blade Runner that is just a yellow background with a black sort of minimalist geometric rendering of the origami unicorn.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's more of, I think, maybe on the cute level where it's like, oh, okay, I see what they were going for. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's from the movie. A little detail uh, and a kind of a wink uh, to, to folks who remember it. But I also found, surprisingly, uh, and, and I got this off of um, the TelltaleMind.com. They have a blog post there where it's squirm1976. Sorry, I got uh, I may have gotten the, the, the year wrong on Squirm there, but Squirm, 1976. The visuals, where they have a whole bunch of promotional visuals from the film, and a lot of it's very squirmy. Um, <laughs> there was one uh, one particular international uh, poster, or one sheet, or, or, or lobby card here. This just absolutely loaded with worm images. But then there is strangely a single one that that has just the word Squirm with kind of an interesting font, I guess, that looks like maybe it was written by a, a worm that had been dipped in ink, and it just says Squirm, the monster of 76. In cursive. Yeah. In, in, in worm cursive, I guess. Like I say, I think a worm maybe is supposed to have made that S. So, I don't know. All, all of this is subjective, uh, again, but it, it does make you think about you know, what uh, well, what the difference is between uh, cranking it up and pulling back on it, and certainly when it comes to the use of, of empty spaces or perceived empty spaces in visual design.
4: There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024
2: NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.
1: Now, I also think it's very interesting to think about this concept in um, so-called visionary art and psychedelic art and, and also psychedelic cinema. Um, because I, you know, think of either of these categories, and you often think of busyness. Uh, While the psychedelic experience itself, of course, is going to vary greatly, there is often a description of images and ideas filling the blank or the empty, things that don't have meaning take on heightened meaning. Um, surfaces crawl, move, and breathe. And, and from an AI perspective, I, I suppose the now sort of out of fashion, or I don't hear as much about it, a Google Deep Dream kind of uh, created a version of this it, with its tendency to find dog faces in everything. Mm-hmm. So any given image, any even like a, a blank background would suddenly become faintly alive with intertwined uh, cute dog faces.
0: Yeah, like you take a picture of a lawnmower and the... <laughs> You know, the starter button is a pug's face, and the mm-hmm. uh, and the and the wheels all become little uh, golden retrievers. It, it's cute,
1: yeah. But it, it makes me think too about just the human tendency to to find patterns and to fill emptiness with meaning and things, uh, even in the case of uh, deprivation. Uh, you know, some sort of sensory deprivation scenario, um, or some sort of isolation scenario, uh, the mind eventually starts finding details where there are not details, uh, you know, sometimes to, to harmful degrees. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there are a lot of treatments of this, uh, too. in in uh, in, in various papers I was running across, you know, you get into whole discussions of say marketing, um, how do you fill your show window at a, at, a, at a at a fancy uh, fashion store a clothing store uh, do you just fill it up with the various items you're you're selling um, and you certainly see this approach in some uh shop store windows, or do you have like that one piece and in uh, lots of blank space, open space, or maybe you know a few splashes of color uh you know there are arguments to be made for both sides there are also very specific arguments about well what kind of clientele are being attracted to this store window versus another
0: well yeah, and that 's interesting because it uh brings us to. I would say that there is a fairly consistent thread of uh, class association with maximalist versus minimalist design, Mm -hmm. um, which is that minimalist designs are more often associated with
1: wealth. Yeah, I think uh, one classic example of that is, of course, the the upscale dinner plate versus the. i don 't know the comfort food dinner plate, the yeah. comfort food dinner plate, say filled from an all you can eat buffet uh, generally is a is a pretty pretty loaded dish mm-hmm. uh, there 's not a lot of white space remaining on that dish. Meanwhile, what do you think of when you think of of, of true upscale dining? What do you think of when you think of say the the recent uh, film the menu, which is a uh, uh, you know, very much a send up and parody of um, the high dining experience and the business and culture surrounding it. Uh, mm. You think of a whole bunch of, uh, of of empty plate and like maybe like a few piles or puddings or some sort of very uh, interesting plating of the dish that doesn't take up too much real estate. Yeah, you, you will see a lot of plate. This also made me think about uh, something that uh, anybody out there has any um uh, any dealings with, uh, with newspaper pagination, or I guess design in general, any kind of like design and layout. And that is the subject of, of not only white space, but trapped white space. For those of you unaware, the, the general rule um, has long been, uh, when it comes to a newspaper page, there doesn't have to be an endless cascade of text and images taking up every uh, space on the page. You can have some white space in there, you know, give your features and your images and your text a little room to breathe. But uh, while you can have white space, you do not want to have trapped white space. So uh, you could think of it this way, like your, your text and your images, this is all uh, one continent or island, and it's okay to have inlets and harbors uh, that have white in them that, you know, that are accessible to the outer void, but you don't want lakes and pools of trapped white space within the piece. And, you know, I think it's tempting from either side, if you're inside the world of pagination and design or outside of it, to on some level wonder, well, does this really make sense or is this just a standard? This is just this is just what they have told us to do. This is just the style. Uh, but I, I think there is a, a pretty strong argument to be made that the, the thing is spaces. Uh, draw our attention. Spaces can be used uh, effectively if they're, if they're used on purpose. They can be used to sort of heighten the message of other things in the visual design. But if you include them sort of slapdash, if you include them by accident, then all you're doing is drawing the eyes away from important content or content that you want to be seen as important towards just absolute nothing that has no, yeah. you know, it's, you're not heightening anything. You're just drawing Eyes away from what they should be looking at.
0: Uh, by point of comparison, I would say that rests, moments of silence, are used uh, on purpose in music to heighten the the effect of what is there. You know, rests are one of the most important things in making music mm-hmm. good. Uh, But you would not want blank space inserted haphazardly without that kind of intention in the middle of a song. Might be okay between songs on a record. You wouldn't want it just going in between verses there. Well, let's just have a break for a few seconds.
1: Yeah, unless it's like the break. If you're listening to some drum and bass or something and you need, you know, everything reaches a point and then it stops, then you know what's going to happen next. A massive change and like high energy is going to occur, but that's meaningful white space. Like that's it's a rest. getting your attention. Yeah. yeah, that's a rest.
0: So I I yeah, I totally understand. I think the same is true for the design layout of of a page in a magazine or a newspaper. If you just have meaningless space in between the contents, that that kind of throws you off. You're like, wait a minute, why is that
1: there? I imagine, uh, and maybe we can hear from, from folks out in the restaurant world, I'm sure there, there are rules about this concerning the plating of food, too, because I bet you don't want to have trapped white space on the plate in some form or another. Like, you don't want it to look like something goes, something has been emitted from the plate, Right. you know? Like, yeah. well, where did the pork chop go? Like, that's the space clearly where a pork chop could go. That's the only interpretation my mind can make of it. That's funny. I'm sure some pretentious chef has tried that.
0: We just donut-shaped platings of food.
1: <laughs> so that's all I mean I feel like everything I just said was maybe kind of a ramble and covered a lot of ground but I guess the the basic take home from all of this is the vacuum, the void, emptiness, white space, whatever however you're describing it or or encountering it uh, in a especially in a visual sense. Like it it has it has meaning one way or, or another. Uh, like, it's not um, a completely neutral thing. One could even, I guess, get into the world of literature, right? And printed books, you know, um, what what is the feeling of the, the, the blank space at the end of a chapter, uh, between chapters? Or uh, it's often been uh, discussed, uh, writers will discuss like the horror of the blank page uh, when they can't think of something to write and so forth. Like uh, the, the horror of that kind of void. You know, I have a whole tangent that I want to
0: get into about Haruvakui in cartography and map making, which is very much related to Fear of the Void in art, but raises uh, some fresh issues of its own. But uh, looking at the time, I think we've got to cap today's episode here. And so we will get into that
1: in the next episode in the series. All right. So, yes, join us for more discussions of The Void on the next episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Reminder that Tuesdays and Thursdays are the days when we publish our core episodes of the show. On Mondays, we do Listener Mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form Artifact or Monster Fact. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you
0: would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
3: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.